Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, America. This is a Just Cause Coast to Coast. Welcome to the program where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. I'm Sam Thurman, being joined by Michelle Harris and Lynette Campbell. Y'all ready to do this again tonight? Yes, thanks for having us on. Awesome. Thanks. So, Michelle and Lynette, welcome. You are uh, sitting in on behalf of uh, Cliff, Ethel, and Lamont, who are on assignment. So, appreciate you being here and uh, and helping out with the, to carry on the broadcast. As far as our disclaimer is concerned, just always want to remind folks that we are not attorneys and a just cause coast to coast does not provide legal advice. So we would uh, suggest that you contact your personal legal advisor for your legal needs. Also, the opinions expressed by the callers and guests do not uh, necessarily reflect that of a just cause or a just cause coast to coast. But as always, we want to say thank you for tuning in and choosing to spend time with us this evening. Now, we have a a good program lined up. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit this evening about making prosecutors accountable for misconduct. And so uh, we got some folks that's going to be joining us that can share firsthand accounts of some uh, instances and some things that they're working on. Later in the program, uh, we're going to have Barry Sussman and uh, Sussman? Sussman. Sussman, thank you. Barry is going to be joining us, and uh, he just wrote a, a uh, extensive blog uh, regarding the IRP-6 case. And so uh, the title of that one is When Federal Judicial and Prosecutorial Misconduct Meet. And so we're going to direct, direct folks where they can read that very powerful uh, piece there. Also, Mara Leverett is going to be joining us a little bit later. Mara has been on uh, with us before where she talked about the West Memphis Three in that case. But tonight she's going to be joining us on behalf of an organization that she's a part of, and that is the Center for Prosecutor Integrity. And so she's going to share some information with us uh, on the things that they're doing. And then later in the program, as part of our profile of the wrongful convicted, uh, Tammy Alexander is going to join us, and she's going to be talking about Jamie Snow and and their efforts to get that uh, wrongful conviction overturned. And a just cause has had a longstanding relationship with the folks uh, pushing uh, the Jamie Snow case. Uh, they support the IRP-6, and, uh, and, and the IR, uh, Just Cause helps to, to push Jamie's uh, case and helps to get that out there as well yeah, through, through social media. Now, you know, uh, real quick, just want to uh, also remind folks that uh, a Just Cause was started uh, as a result of the IRP-6 case, and we always want to uh, be mindful of the IRP-6 and ask people to keep our brothers in prayer, uh, as we continue in that fight to get their wrongful conviction overturned, as they are still incarcerated now after over two years. And so we got a lot of efforts going on there. The IRP-6 are Gary Walker, David Banks, Dave Zerpolo, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, and Demetrius Harper. Uh, now, we would direct our listeners to go out to freetheirp6.org, uh, 
Again, free, the IRP6.org. There is a lot of information out there that takes you all the way from the beginning of this case all the way to where we are now. And, you know, it's an atrocity as to what has happened in this case. And so, you know, they'll see where uh, we're fighting to get uh, get the case overturned. Uh, the things that went wrong, even from the beginning with the uh, FBI coming in and, and the way they conducted that raid, uh, the way they treated the African-American employees in the business, uh, the fact that the prosecutor, uh, Assistant U.S. Attorney Matthew Kirsch, uh, convened two grand juries yeah. in order to get an indictment. The mm-hmm. first grand jury got it uh, got it right That's and right. called it what it was, that being a debt collection case, a corporate debt collection case. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet he called a second grand jury, criminalized it, and uh, and they got the indictment. The case went to trial in, in uh, the fall of 2011, and our friends were uh, wrongfully convicted. Now, through the course of the uh, court proceedings, several things happened there as well. You have expert witness that was not allowed to testify. You got a uh, Fifth Amendment violation that occurred. Uh, the speedy trial. Speedy trial. Yes, uh, so many. And you got the other part of the Fifth Amendment was the transcript that would substantiate the fact that that happened. That's right. That has not been uh, provided to the, the uh, defense team. And that's the only part of the transcript. Amazing. Isn't, Isn't that it? mysterious? Yeah. Well, what bothers me is really from start to finish, there have been so many things that have been done wrong on the prosecutor's side and the judge's side that that's why we're really asking people to reach out to Eric Holder's office. Yep. And, and please, just take a minute to call them. It, it, it doesn't take much time of your time. If you could give Eric Holder a call, his number is 202-514-2003. And 202-514-2005. Because I will say I was glad to hear that he's concerned about what's going on in Ferguson. Yeah. You know, yeah. and so we're glad about that. And ultimately, that's all we want is we want justice. Absolutely. We want justice in Ferguson. We want justice for the IRP6. We really want justice across this country. Yep. If something needs to change. And so I'm glad to see some of those things that are going on and, and some more things we'll be talking about tonight. Yep. And, 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 you know, as far as the other call to action type stuff, you know, we got to... Uh, a petition out there on change.org uh, where uh, related to this transcript situation. Yeah. You know, we're asking folks to go out to change.org, do a search on IRP6, sign that petition because of the fact that, you know, uh, this type of thing, it needs to stay in the forefront of folks' mind. Yes. That if you don't take action and if you don't do something about it, it can come around. It can oh, happen to you. It'll happen to you. Absolutely. Yeah. And then also one of the other things, Lynette, is the jury. You know, we this is one of those other things as far as where we, you know, believe that something happened in that jury room. The only people that that know what happened are Judge Arguello and the folks who were sitting there. But we're asking for their help. Okay, to the jurors. If you have any questions, any comments, uh, anything you thought was strange, uh, we don't blame you for the, the verdict that was hang, handed down because you could only do what you could with the information that was given to you. If you have any questions, please give us a call at 855-529-4252. That's 855-529-4252. And you could also uh, email us anonymously if you'd like at contact at a-justcause.com. And, you know, uh, also for our listeners, uh, if you'd like to participate in, in tonight's program, and, and there's going to be a lot of stuff that we're going to be talking about that you can jump in there on, 
Uh, and uh, our phone number is 347-838-8976, 347-838-8976. Uh, our lines are open, and we welcome your questions or comments. Uh, as Lynette said, you can email us at contact at a-justcause.com, or if you'd like more information about a just cause, you can go to www.a-justcause.com. Also, uh, we're in that mode of you know, asking folks to support a just cause and a just cause coast to coast on our website. We have a button where you can donate. We are currently working on our five five hundred one c three, getting that uh, reinstated. Uh, and uh, but you know, you have still have opportunities to uh, support us. You know, you know, if you believe in what a just cause is doing, you know, organizations like a just cause and advocacy groups uh, like us, you know, we uh, appreciate that type of support. And those who have. Uh, donated in the past. We really appreciate your support. As far as programming is concerned, you can catch a Just Cause Coast to Coast on Sunday mornings at 1030 a.m. Eastern Time on Progressive Radio Network. You get there by going to prn.fm. And then for archives of our programming, you can go to ajcradio.com. Again, ajcradio.com. And then anytime throughout the day, 24 by 7, you can also just uh, log in to live365.com and just have continuous 24 by 7 AJC programming. We ask that you like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and again, go out to freetheirp6.org. We need you to, you know, uh, stay on top of that and uh, uh, educate yourself about that case and the things related to the transcript, the Fifth Amendment violation, the constitutional rights, the civil rights uh, violations, all that kind of stuff that ha- has occurred. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. I mean, all of it is. It's so much. It is such a long laundry list that it just, you know, how can anyone ignore that? Exactly. And so, and Michelle, you mentioned the fact that um, uh, Attorney General Eric Holder uh, has, you know, over the last couple of days, he was he was in Ferguson, Missouri and went down there to, you know, intervene uh, on behalf of President Obama uh, with regard to that situation there. I mean, yeah. that is a situation that just blew up. It's a fire keg. Yes. But, you know, it, it made America open its eyes as to the fact that we still have issues in this yes, country, and people do not want to acknowledge the fact, uh, whether it be racial tension or whether it be, you know, elitist, you know, if you will, yeah. just, yeah. you know, uh, and then one of the things, too, that's coming up big out of this whole thing is the, is the uh, militarization of the police forces. Exactly. But when you look at the, you know, as far as Eric Holder going down there and, and you know, he, he you got to admit that he uh, in the couple of occasions that he spoke while he was down there, very passionate, you know, yeah. and, and you could see that he really had some compassion about what he was talking yeah. about. And it's good to see because we really do need to see that. Um, it's one thing for politicians to talk, but to see someone that really is reaching out and shows real genuine concern, um, that's what we need. That's what's going to make the difference in this country. And so it's good to see, you know, we'll talk about you if you're not doing anything, but you know, we will talk about when you are doing something Yeah, because that's all we want. Yeah. That's all we want. So I'm happy to see it. And, and, you know, when you listen to the dialogue, uh, from the attorney general on this, on this matter, you know that there are a lot of things that he's pushing for uh, when he's talking about the Civil Rights Division and a fair investigation there and so forth. Uh, and, and, and unfortunately, 
the folks in, in power in the administration, you know, they have to deal with the politics and, and the, you know, the right wing, the left wing, the middle of the rotors, the tea parties, you know, and, and all those players as well. But, you know, uh, he is, you know, mentioning uh, several things here that, that uh, you know, sometimes folks think that, that they turn a blind eye to. There was this one article that came out, and it was in the Washington Post, and anyone who heard the attorney general speaking on this subject would, uh, would have heard this, but uh, then they reprinted parts of, of his speech in the Washington Post. And he says uh, to the St. Louis Community College, um, uh, Florissant Valley down there, he said, I understand that mistrust, uh, he said in remarks at the college, I am the attorney general of the United States, but, but I am also a black man. He relayed stories of being pulled over on the New Jersey Turnpike twice and having his car searched. He remembered the time he went to see a movie in Georgetown, and the cops yelled at him, you know, where are you going? And he was a federal prosecutor at the time. He ended his speech by saying, you know, change is possible. And the same kid who got stopped on the New Jersey uh, freeway is now Attorney General of the United States. This country is capable of change, but change doesn't happen by itself. So let's start here. Let's do the work today. And then he, he followed that up with a, an op-ed that got published in the uh, St. Louis Dispatch where uh, he was you know, kind of going along that, that same line and, and saying that, you know, th- that things can change and that he was pledging to the folks of Ferguson that a fair investigation would uh, continue and that it would, you know, they would see this thing through. Mm-hmm. But to have him speak in that manner, yeah. you know, yeah. now. You know, obviously, some folks are going to come out and say, you know, he, he pulled a race card and all this kind of stuff. I mean, you got to call it what it is. Yeah, that's exactly. the truth. And, and actually, you know, what he did here is something that we have actually talked about on this program. It's like, okay, the president of the United States is African-American. Mm-hmm. The uh, top sheriff in the, in the, in the in land, land yeah. uh, you know, the attorney general is an African-American. He sure is. The top man in the Federal Bureau of Prisons is an African-American. And we've often asked the question, you know, why don't we hear some of this kind of dialogue? Yeah. This, you know, brought it. Yeah. You know, yes, it did. and when you have a small town, you know, population, 20 something thousand people, but it starts to get worldwide recognition for not good things. Yeah. <laughs> something's wrong. Yeah. yeah. But to, to have the attorney general, you know, speak to in this manner. It. Yeah. You know, you, you got to say hats off to him. Yeah, and the fact that he said change doesn't happen by itself, and he's saying let's do the work today, and really that's where we all have to come together as a society and say we're going to do whatever it takes to start exposing the things that are wrong and then cleaning house. And so I hope he, I really sincerely hope he means all of this. He seems sincere. And so we're just looking. We just want some change. Right is just right. And, and, you know, the attorney general talks a, a lot uh, lately about uh, civil rights and civil rights division. And even when he was being confirmed in Congress, he talked about the civil rights uh, division and, right. and that there, you know, he says, I think in, in January 2009, he, he made a comment that civil rights division is unique. Uh, it is in some ways the conscience of the Justice Department. And, uh, and so, you know, in saying that, and when I pulled up, uh, I went to the Department of Justice website. And it says that the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice was created in 1957 by the enactment of the Civil Rights Act of 1957, and it works to uphold the civil and, and constitutional rights uh-huh. of all Americans, particularly 
some of the most vulnerable members of our society. The division enforces federal statutes prohibiting discrimination on the basis of race, color, sex, disability, religion, uh, familial status, and national origin. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I brought that up because of the fact, and I want to tie it into the IRP6 case from the standpoint of when it says that the Civil Rights Division uh, you know, is there to uphold the civil and constitutional rights of uh, the citizens of the United States, the IRP6 rights were violated. Yes, Absolutely. they were. They were initially violated. The civil rights were violated with this, uh, the, this fiasco of the FBI rushing into the IRP Solutions building in February of 2005 and herding all of the uh, African-American yeah, employees yeah. Into, the, into, the into the break room. room. Yes. So, you know, some folks say, and we agree, okay, that's illegal. Uh, um, and why separate everyone out? Exactly. I mean, it wasn't like everyone went in. Right. And so people have a tendency to say, well, you're pulling the race card. Well, there are times race is involved. That's, that's correct. And when you separate the blacks and the whites, you let the whites go home, and you go tell the blacks to go sit in the corner somewhere and flash your gun, and, that's a problem. And, Michelle, don't search the white employees. That's yes, true. Exactly. But then you call the black employees back and search purses. And, and you know, a caller brought this up on Tuesday night that um, they didn't have a search warrant to search each individual person. That's right. The search warrant wasn't, you know, I'm showing up and I'm the FBI, I'm coming to IRP Solutions. Um, does Michelle Harris work here? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we need to talk with her. Exactly. You know, it, right. wasn't, it, it was a, a search warrant for IRP Solutions financial records, yes. but, which, by the way, they did not get the they financial records. Well, I was going to say, they didn't even, the one search warrant they had, they didn't follow that either. Yeah. I mean, they ignored the search warrant, the one legitimate thing they, they say that they had to get those financial records. They didn't do that, but they did everything else yep. that was outside of it, and that is illegal. Yeah. And you the, have a right to just go in my stuff because you feel like it, and, and I've done nothing wrong. And then to make comments like if a white woman came here to get a job, would she be able to get a job? And I think you uh, so aptly <laughs> answered that one on Tuesday night. You know, yeah, <laughs> it's like I am a white woman. Well, I'm not a white woman, but you are a white Michelle woman. Michelle is a white woman, <laughs> and I was working there. And, and you worked at IRP Solutions. Absolutely. And how was that experience, uh, Michelle? The best job. Uh, the environment. It was so. It's so exciting to be a part of a product that will revolutionize an industry, and how much more so. The judicial system. This is about getting the bad guy and let's keep the innocent out. That's right. You know what I'm saying? That we pull together as a nation. And again, going back to 9-11, this would have allowed all the federal agencies to talk and to share information. It doesn't help you if I have information that you need. And so this would have brought all of that together. it's, It's an exciting time. It yep. really was. Yep. And so I just, and what I love is the dream is not gone. That's it's right. It's not dead. That's right. And so they are going to come back. We're going to get justice for our guys, and we're going to help this country. And, 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 you know, we'll talk about this when we come back, but, you know, going along again with uh, Eric Holder and President Obama, and, and yeah. you know, they've gotten a lot of flack over, you know, what they're doing right now, even with the situation in, in Ferguson, because of the fact that they, you know, they're calling it what it is. That's and, right. You know, yeah. people are 
criticizing the president for being on, on vacation and all kinds of stuff. We're going to talk a little bit more about that when we oh, come back on yes, the other side of the break. Will. And then yeah. uh, Barry is going to be joining us also to talk about prosecutorial misconduct. And uh, But, you know, um, I, I, I want to ask you a question when we come back, Michelle, as far okay. as, you know, in any way, shape, or form, do the IRP-6 even come close to being a criminal element? Hold that thought until we come back. Oh. Uh, we were, <laughs> Yeah, going to put you on pause. Uh, so, listeners, if you'd like to join in on the conversation, have a question or comment, our phone number is 347-838-8976. 347-838-8976. This is a Just Cause Coast to Coast where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice on behalf of Cliff, Ethel, and Lamont. I'm Sam Thurman being joined by Michelle Harris and Lynette Campbell. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back.
Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. Our phone number is 347 347-838-8976. I'm Sam Thurman, being joined by Michelle Harris and Lynette Campbell. Cliff Stewart, Ethel Lopez, and Lamont Banks are on assignment. Uh, you know, we were just talking about the situation down in Ferguson just a moment ago, and then, you know, making a connection with the Civil Rights Division and some of the things that went on in the IRP uh, six case. We pulled a clip from uh, Attorney General Eric Holder uh, while he was, uh, as he was making a, a comments uh, about Ferguson. So, if we can go ahead and play that clip, please. The people of Ferguson to be treated fairly and to have a good relationship with people in law enforcement. Um, a desire to be um, seen as equals. Um, a real desire to to have to have healing. Um, there is a, a real fracture out there now that um, I think people are really trying to work their way through. Um, and as I indicated to them, I think this is out of this tragedy comes a great opportunity um, for reforming that, um, that community. But I think that's something that we can do nationwide. This has engendered a, a conversation that I think we ought to have, but it, we can't stop at that conversation. It's time to take concrete steps. Uh, to make real the promise that I think now exists. And uh, the Justice Department is hopefully going to be a leader in that effort, but um, citizens and uh, state and local officials uh, have to be a part of that effort as well. Do you have any concerns that the local prosecutors will be impartial and their ability to do so uh, is, is a concern to the Justice Department? Well, as I said, our investigation is independent. Um, it's going to be thorough. It's going to be fair. Um, we have worked with the, um, the county prosecutor in developing evidence and sharing, done some interviews um, together. But I'm really confident that uh, at the end of the day, the investigation that we're going to be doing will be thorough and will, will be fair. And, you know, that, uh, those were comments that uh, Attorney General Eric Holder was making uh, earlier this week uh, in Ferguson uh, regarding the situation there. And, and you know, uh, Lynette and Michelle, a couple of things that jumped out at me as he was talking about was equality, opportunity for reform, and then uh, basically holding prosecutors accountable. Accountable, yes. yes. And so, you know, when when you look at that, and and, and you know, obviously that is a 
a local matter, uh, state matter for the most part. You know, so they, mm-hmm. they have a, a line uh, that they can't necessarily cross per se. But at the same time, they're, like you said, you know, at a federal level, they are going to continue with their investigation. And so I'm going to draw the, draw the tie back to IRP. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the same thing. And that's why I asked you before the break, um, and, and we've had other folks even comment on the fact that, you know, the IRP-6, IRP Solutions, had law enforcement working in the building. In the yes. room. Yeah. I mean, you know, as subject matter experts, you had them there all the time. Exactly. Uh, and you, none of these guys had criminal records or anything. But I, I asked you a question before the break, uh, Michelle, as to would you take the IRP-6 as criminals? Not at all. I, and I will say, I'm proud to say that I worked at IRP Solutions. It's a great, it was a great company. The product is great. And the people there. I mean, these are smart, intelligent, ethical, good, hardworking men. And so I'm glad that I were. I'm proud to say that I was. Absolutely. And I love that they're going to get vindicated. They're absolutely going to be vindicated to prove they did nothing wrong and that this software application is phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And it, the software, the case investigative lifecycle software, the Silk Software Solution, would actually you know, be a basis for, as the Attorney General was just saying, yes. opportunity for reform. You know, it would help law enforcement at all levels of government reform how they do business, how they collect information, how they share information, and so forth. Now, you know, the Attorney General was talking to, from a uh, slightly different angle uh, with regard to opportunity for reform, but, you know, I'm just going to go with that. You know, yeah. I'm going to go with what I just said. <laughs> well, and we, you want to be effective. I mean, the police department is not there to not be effective. And so what that application does is it allows them to be more proactive and, and effective in what they're trying to do. Right. And and then as far as the another comment that the attorney general made was goes right in line with what we're talking about tonight and as far as holding prosecutors accountable. accountable. Now, you know, he's not going to, you know, uh, go out on a limb and talk about uh, per se uh, the prosecutors in a particular jurisdiction that's not under his authority at a, at a federal level. So, you know, you notice that he didn't he didn't take the didn't take the bait <laughs> on on the <laughs> yeah. comment there for, for the local prosecutor. But the way he did answer that is that, you know, we are going to ensure that the people of Ferguson get a fair investigation, and it's going to be thorough. Yeah. And, again, i got to tie in the IRP-6. That's what we're asking. That's right. You know, Give we, us some fairness. Exactly. I mean, you know, one of the things that we ran into a lot of, and we're going to go to Barry here in a moment. Uh, so, Barry, sit tight. Be patient. Thanks for being there. <laughs> <laughs> we're coming. Yeah, we're coming. But one of the things that uh, I wanted to bring out, too, as far as like with the Civil Rights Division, the Criminal Division, mm-hmm. the Office of Professional Responsibility, the Inspector General's Office. And, you know, we have reached out as a just cause to various offices and in, in, uh, within the under the uh, Department of Justice umbrella. And, you know, there have been times there have been some folks who have given us uh, some some good uh, insight as to how to do certain things. Mm-hmm. We've gotten a couple of letters back from a folks, a couple of folks who actually signed their letters. Oh, yeah. But when you talk about accountability, we had a lot of letters that came back that no one signed. Right. And so, you know, we're just asking Attorney General Eric Holder, just as he's taking a stand here in Ferguson to in situations like this, something yeah. that is totally under his authority, like the IRP case, to please, you know, step in and say, hey, and, and, and 
you know, the attorney general, he, he's aware of this case. I mean, he knows it. We've been calling his office for over two, two years. years. Yes, he's got thousands of phone calls, emails. There's no way he doesn't know. Right. And the fact that this is really under his jurisdiction, it's not like it's at a state or local level, which, I mean, hey, the federal government does what they want to do, right? Right. They reach out wherever they f- feel compelled they need to. Right. This is in your backyard. And right. so all we're asking is investigate. I thought it was a very, it's a very simple request. Send a letter of inquiry. Where is the transcript? Right. Right. I mean, that that doesn't even take you a whole lot of time. And, you know, I think I think the attorney general, you know, will will do something, because when you have situations like like this that uh, have occurred in, in Ferguson, and I'm sure that it's going to expose other other things, yeah. other things that are going on across the country other situations, then um, we, we got to know that and have to have to trust that he is going to he's going to take a look at this. Yeah. I, I believe that. And, I and the fact that. is, we're never going to stop until something is done. And so we will gladly continue uh, until we get justice for these guys. We, we have to. Yep. Let's go to our first guest. Uh, Barry, are you there, sir? Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. So, uh, Barry, you wrote a, gosh, uh, an excellent piece on the IRP uh, story. And um, I think you hit the nail on the head as far as all the key points uh, things that, that came out, and there are things that, that should be questioned in this case. Uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, what drew your attention to the IRP uh, story, and then also as far as, you know, other, other types of situations where there is prosecutorial misconduct. Well, I write regularly on federal prosecutorial misconduct and the federal criminal justice system in general. Uh, I found that the case with the IRP-6 had many of the elements that we see in a lot of of the more egregious prosecutions. It's part of what allows the federal government to achieve a a stunning 99% conviction rate in federal court. And as I said in the article, it's something more akin to what you would expect to see in a... uh, a third world banana republic or, or some sort of authoritarian, excuse me, authoritarian dictatorship. Uh, I, I think that, you know, the, the, the 99% conviction rate on its face just is illegitimate, and it's achieved through many of the tactics that, uh, that we saw in the IRP6 case. And, you know, Barry, when I read your article yesterday, because I got a preview of it uh, before it went out and uh, or before it got posted. And when I read it, it, it prompted me to do some research on that fact. I mean, right on the front page of your article, it says uh, Russia's conviction rate is 99%. And so at, at first when I saw that graphic, uh, you know, I thought that, that you were going to put, you know, a little weird twist on there to, to uh, you know, talk about the conditions in a particular country and using the word Russia and then, you know, do a flip on us and say, well, you know, this is really the United States, when in reality it is Russia, it's the United States, it's China, it's, just, it's Japan. You made me do some extra research on this thing, and it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it, it, it's really tragic, and it's something that, that very few people are aware of. And as I'm so fond of pointing out, even if federal prosecutors were, were flawless, were errorless, uh, and everyone they charged were actually guilty, a, a normal margin of error would, would yield a conviction rate significantly lower than 99%. So it, it strongly suggests that 
the process itself is illegitimate, that there are illegitimate tactics being employed. And what I found really interesting about the IRP6 case is that in, in almost all federal cases, you see one or two of these elements come into play. In the IRP6 case, it, it, was, it, it was amazing that they, they hit every point. Uh, just about all of their favorite uh, prosecutorial tactics, which are illegitimate, were used in this case. And uh, the issue of the missing transcripts I found fascinating because that's something that we've been seeing more and more of. And it is anecdotal. Uh, it, it's hard to, I, I don't want to draw too much from it, but we are seeing more and more cases where if there is something in the transcript that uh, works against the government position, it, it magically disappears or it's unavailable. Uh, court reporters die. Transcripts are unavailable. It, it's just incredible. Did you say court reporters die? Yes, uh, I, I had a case where uh, the, uh, the story the government gave was that on a particular day where a key portion of the transcript was, was missing, that on that day there was a substitute court reporter who had subsequently died, and no one knew where that court reporter's transcripts were. Now, interestingly, I noticed on the IRP6 website, uh, you cite the Court Reporter Act. And that's very relevant, because according to the Court Reporter Act, regardless of who the court reporter is that day, at the end of the day, those, a copy of those records are, be, are to be turned into the clerk of the court. So even if someone does die, uh, that should really be of no moment. Yet that's a, uh, an excuse that's been given for why transcripts are unavailable. Well, and, you know, Barry, to even go a little bit further, uh, even in the IRP6 case, uh, there were – the story just was ever-evolving, ever-changing. It went from uh, the fact that maybe the court reporter didn't hear what was going on at the sidebar conference, maybe her, ear, her, her uh, earplugs fell out, uh, maybe um, the, the uh, IRP-6 were not standing close enough to the microphone, and then the one that really gets me is when Judge Arguello says that, well, I don't remember what I said. Yeah, actually, the correct procedure for uh, missing transcripts in federal court is the judge is supposed to hold what's called a, a reconstruction hearing. Right. Unfortunately, the, the reconstruction hearing uh, almost always uh, eliminates the uh, part of the transcript that's favorable to the defense. And uh, this issue has come up before several appellate courts, and the appellate courts have recently held that unless you can state with specificity what was in that portion of the missing transcript, uh, you're not going to get a reversal on appeal. Now, uh, if the transcript is missing, how can you possibly state with specificity, and they mean specificity, what is in that transcript? So it's really a catch-22. Well, and the judge fully admitted she doesn't remember. So maybe I forgot I violated someone's Fifth Amendment rights. You can't you know, remember? It, it, yeah, yeah, it, it, it's really stunning. I, I was amazed by what went on in the IRP-6 case because it's, it's black-letter law that obviously uh, the accused cannot be forced to give testimony against themselves, and uh, it, it's part of the standard jury instructions that a, the jury is not to infer guilt by a defendant's failure to take the stand. 
Now, in this case, the defendant was, or one of the defendants, was forced to take the stand and then assert his Fifth Amendment privilege before the jury. I can't think of something more prejudicial than that. And, right. and I've yep. never seen a case where that occurred. It, it, it's really quite unique. And, you know, that's another situation, too, Barry, where they even tried to go and, and uh, say that, uh, well, it, what, what occurred in that instance was not prejudicial to the rest of the uh, IRP-5, you know, that it only prejudiced uh, Mr. Barnes. Which, uh, but here again, it's like grasping for straws. It, it, the court process... Uh, it's supposed to be about seeking the truth. And, and uh, uh, Gary Walker, one of the IRP-6, he commented once that, you know, they, they weren't about, uh, the court was not uh, about the business of seeking the truth. They didn't want the truth. And, and, you know, that's one of those things where Judge Arguello, the court reporter, Darlene Martinez, the prosecutor, Matthew Kirsch, and then even all the way up to, to uh, uh, Matthew Kirsch's boss, when you talk about the, uh, U.S. Attorney in Denver, John Walsh. I mean, the IRP-6 wanted to sit down with Mr. Walsh. They put together a proffer and outlined everything that they that they did in the company. They outlined, you know, why they did what they did and when they did what they did with full knowledge. If if if, if they lied anywhere yep. in that proffer, they signed they signed something basically saying yep. if we lied anywhere in here, then we you know we know that there are consequences to That's that. That's true. They didn't lie, nor did Mr. Walsh, you know, do anything to, to try and ensure that, you know, why are you going to send six innocent men yep. to prison? So, uh, Barry, we'll be right back with you on the other side of this break. We've got to take a quick break. And uh, so we were with Barry Sussman, and uh, he's talking about an article that he wrote on his blog uh, regarding the IRP-6. And we're also talking about prosecutorial misconduct. Barry, why would we take the break? Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the recent uh, POGO study that came out in March, uh, but I wanted to come back and just kind of get your views on some of that as well. This is a Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. Our phone number is 347-838-8976. I'm Sam Thurman with Michelle Harrison, Lynette Campbell. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Sergeant Michelle Garcia served meritoriously in Iraq and has the medals to prove it. Soon after leaving the Navy, Lieutenant Chris Scott found a job, a home, and started a family of his own. Corpsman Richard Stokely took the skills he learned in Vietnam and put them to good use as a paramedic. But soon after leaving the military, each of these veterans fell on hard times and faced homelessness. Even after Michelle lost all her savings, even after Chris wasn't able to pay his mortgage, and even after Richard battled alcoholism for years, they each reached out for help when they needed it most. A simple phone call put them in touch with a trained professional from the Department of Veterans Affairs. That call got Michelle a place to stay until she stay could afford one of her own. Put Chris in touch with employment and found Richard a substance abuse program. These veterans are success stories not only for how they were able to help others while serving their country, but for how they were able to let others help them. If you know or are a veteran in need, make the call. Thanks for listening to AJC Radio. Call in at 347-838-8976 and share your stories and comments about judicial injustice. Be a part of the AJC Radio Show every Tuesday and Thursday night 
6 p.m. Mountain, 8 p.m. Eastern. The number again, 347-838-8976 or www.blogtalkradio.com and search for a just cause coast to coast. Over a million people are sitting in the prisons of America for nonviolent offenses. That's why I'm asking you to join the American Civil Liberties Union and help us in the fight to end mass incarceration. We spend over $80 billion a year incarcerating people. Alternatives to prison, like community service, drug treatment, and rehabilitation, cost us less and can turn lives around. It's time for fair justice. It's time for smart justice. And we need your help. Victims of crime can help. Let us be your resource, your support, your guide to rebuilding your life and restoring hope. Yes, you have the ability to recover. Take the first step. Call 1 800 FYI CALL or visit us at www.ncbc.org. Hi, I'm an actor. And that qualifies me to talk to you about social issues. And even though my opinion is controversial, I believe that racism is wrong. Now today, what I would like you to do is take a look at your skin color and hug somebody that has a different color skin. We can stop racism together, one hug at a time. Definitely ask permission before you hug somebody. Thank you. The opinions and views expressed by guests and callers on A Just Cause Coast to Coast do not necessarily reflect those of A Just Cause or A Just Cause Coast to Coast. Just Cause, Coast to Coast, where we're bringing you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. I'm Sam Thurman with Michelle Harris and Lynette Campbell. Uh, and for Cliff Stewart, Ethel Lopez, and Lamont Banks, who are on assignment. Joining us this evening, our first guest uh, was on just before the break, Barry Sussman. And he wrote a blog about uh, federal judicial and prosecutorial misconduct uh, in the IRP-6 case. And uh, Barry writes uh, about a lot of uh, cases as far as... Uh, 
prosecutorial misconduct. Barry, before the break, I asked a question about the POGO study, and I was just wondering if you were familiar with that and if you, you know, what your, uh, what your views on, on the state of affairs that that, that study uh, brought to light. I, I uh, must admit to being unfamiliar with that particular study. Okay. And, and, you know, that's one of those things where I, I will direct our listeners to go out to uh, pogo.org, again, pogo.org. And that's uh, where Pogo did a report where they found that prosecutorial misconduct uh, was, you know, at, at alarming numbers. I mean, and they talk about secret files and how there were 600-plus instances of professional wrongdoing uh, from 2002 to 2013, and, uh, and, and so they really break it down. And one of the things that, that they talk about even in this report is the fact that very rarely, uh, if at all, uh, does the uh, federal government identify, you know, who, uh, who, who the prosecutors are that may have committed uh, uh, misconduct. And so, you know, I would just encourage folks to go out there and, and take a look at that. Michelle, I think you had a question. I did. Uh, Mr. Sussman, can I ask on your opinion – how prevalent is prosecutorial misconduct? You've done a I lot of research. I think it's endemic, and it's institutionalized, and it is an accepted part of the process. Look, we've got to stop pussyfooting around and call it like it is. Uh, you know, uh, people accept blatantly false notions, like this is the greatest system of justice in the world, and, and, and similar uh, nonsensical ideas. Uh, with the world's highest rate of incarceration, nothing could be further from the truth. The U.S. has an incarceration rate that is uh, ten times higher than some Western European nations. Now, this really means that there are only one or two possibilities. Either Americans are the most criminally inclined people in the world, or there is something very, very wrong with our criminal justice system. And part of the problem with the federal system is that unlike state cases, you know, look, uh, it seems like a, a daily or weekly occurrence. Some guy walks out of state prison after serving decades for a crime he has been proven not to have committed. Now, we very rarely, if ever, see this in federal court because federal crimes are so amorphous and vague and nondescript uh, like the IRP6 case, they use quote-unquote crimes like mail fraud and wire fraud. Uh, these are catch-alls. I mean, if I wrote you a letter that I loved you and put it in the mail, that would constitute mail fraud, because I, uh, assuming that it was untrue, let me back up a second, because I used the mail to deceive you. And even if there's no underlying financial gain or criminality to it, that would satisfy the mail fraud statutes because the mail fraud statutes have been stretched so broadly they encompass almost everything. And yep. uh, I don't know if, if you're familiar with, with Lord Black. He's written extensively on this. Uh, you know, he, he, when he first became a victim of the mail fraud statute, uh, statutes, he found it incomprehensible. He couldn't believe it. And now another part of the problem is that Look, the prosecutors, the U.S. attorneys, they know full well what's going on. And this is how you move up what I call the judicial corporate ladder. It's win at any cost. There is nothing to be gained by exculpating the innocent. It is find a way to convict. And the way these federal cases begin, they, don't, they typically don't start with a crime. 
They begin with a target. And then it's a game of what crime can we fit to this individual? You know, there was a story in, I think it was New York Magazine several years ago, about how in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, these prosecutors used to play a game on their lunch break. They would name a historical figure like Mother Teresa or John Lennon and sit there and theorize about what federal offense they could stick to that person. And that's wow. how the process really works. That's what it's all about. It has nothing to do with public protection. It has nothing to do with public safety. It is simply a means for career advancement, moving themselves into elected office, into a judgeship, or wherever it is that they're seeking to go. And their attitude is, look, uh, uh, once they make a determination that an individual is undesirable for any reason whatsoever, then they're just fair game. And whatever crime they can pin on them, it, it's almost insignificant. And the federal code is so broad. You know, the ABA did a study a couple of years back. They attempted to identify every federal crime. And they were and they unsuccessful. Yeah, they, they couldn't, couldn't do, do it. it. No yeah. one knows. <laughs> I mean, there are so many federal offenses, uh, there is no one source that can name them all. So and, this know, is really insanity. And, Barry, that kind of uh, brings to, to my mind the fact that uh, attorney Harvey, Harvey Silverglade uh, yeah. wrote a book entitled yeah, uh, Three Felonies a Day. And, and basically, you know, the premise of that is that there are so many federal statutes on the books that any uh, citizen, any uh, American citizen could be walking down the street, and in any given day you could commit three felonies and never even know that you committed the felony because there are just so many on the books that people just don't know. And, uh, That's Barry, right. I understand. That's I understand. right. Go ahead. And, and Silverglade's book is full of wonderful examples of people being prosecuted for just uh, under insane circumstances. I mean, people read it and, and, and they, they think, God, what, what rational person would, would possibly prosecute someone for something like this? But this is yeah. what goes on in federal courts every day. Look, we had, we had here in the District of New Jersey Chris Christie as the, uh, as, as the U.S. attorney. And this guy basically took the position uh, as a springboard for elected office. So his criteria for case selection was simply what case would garner the most publicity. And that was, that was his selection criteria. And this is how the office ran for many years under Christie. So, Barry, I understand you're going to stick around with us for a little bit. Uh, let's go to our next guest. And, uh, and Barry, be, uh, feel free to chime in uh, as we continue this dialogue. Uh, Maura, how are you? Welcome to the program. Thanks. I'm glad to be back on. And let me say, it's a real treat to be on with Barry Sussman. What a what a pleasure that is. Thank you. And so, joining us is Maura Leverett. Uh, she joined us uh, about two or three weeks ago, and we talked about the West Memphis uh, Three and the books that she's written about that. But tonight, Maura, you're joining us to talk a little bit about uh, holding prosecutors accountable and prosecutorial misconduct. And as a representative of the Center for Prosecutor Integrity. Tell us a little bit about the Center for Prosecutor Integrity. I'm very proud to be a member of the advisory board of the Center for Prosecutor Integrity, which was formed a bit over a year ago and has accomplished quite a bit in a very, very short time, and I think it's of national significance. I would urge any of our listeners 
who can get to a computer tonight and get on the Internet to go to www.prosecutorintegrity.org and look at our website. We are, have as our mission statement the belief that uh, we are all about preserving the presumption of innocence and, that, and holding prosecutors accountable. So a lot of what we've been focusing on is the idea that if we don't even know what is going on, we, can, we, we can't do anything about it. So one of the things that the center has done has been to create a, what I think is a magnificent database that we have started called the, the Registry of Prosecutor Misconduct, where we are taking actual cases that have already been before a judge, and a judge has said there was misconduct in this case. They're, they're all over the place, as Barry was saying. They're, they're rampant, endemic. But uh, the idea of getting, getting actual cases, and this is not a situation where I might say, oh, I was done wrong in my case. This is a very high bar that we've established that it has got to have been a court has determined that there was misconduct. We started off with 200 cases of uh, 200 federal cases. We are raising money to go state by state to continue to add to that uh, on a state level and continue to add more federal cases until eventually we have documented every known case of prosecutor misconduct. The registry will allow anybody who wants to to go to it and and look for see what's there right now and what we've got and see the, the, the citation, the crime, the state where it was committed, the prosecutor's full name, if it's known, uh, whether it was federal or not, the year of the trial, the opinion, the finding. Was anybody ever censured for, for what went on? And the answer there is usually not. Did it, was there a new trial ordered? All of that information is available. So that will be of great help, I think, to uh, attorneys when they're going into trials and the, the public to, so that, and reporters like myself, so we can begin to get an idea what what actually is going on out there. And, you know, Maura, I, I have to say that, you know, from firsthand uh, experience, that the database is very, very helpful. I have gone out there and used it myself. And so, uh, you know, even just to when you're looking at a particular situation like the IRP-6 and you're not quite sure what, you know, what to put your finger on as far as, now I know the judge did something, I know the prosecutor did something, I just don't have the word for it. And, you know, it has this column here that talks about misconduct type. And, and so, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that kind of thing, and, and then just going over and, and then reading the citation and so forth is really helpful. Let's go to the phones real quick. We have the truth on that uh, wants to have, have a question. Uh, Truth, are you there? Yes, I wanted to to um, to say to Barry, your your guest that you uh, has uh, has on there now. Um, you know what? I'm I'm the mother of one of the IRP six uh, guys, and the mother-in-law of the other, and the other ones I've been knowing for uh, twenty twenty plus years. Uh, you know what, uh, uh, Barry? I think that I wanted to say this because I don't think it's been said yet. When they went to get a warrant to come to 
to the building where the guys were working, they brought a warrant saying they come to look at financial records. And after getting there at 9 o'clock in the morning to 10 at night, they imaged every computer in that building. And not one time with the, with the, with the financial cabinet, file cabinet sitting right there, they never touched it, they never looked at it, not one time. They, they even had to leave and go and get some other equipment to continue to image every computer to be sure they got all the information they were looking for, which was the, hard, uh, uh, which was the software. Well, later, my son-in-law, who's brother to one of the men of the IRP-6, he went to uh, the FBI's chief counsel in Denver, and I can't think of his name right now, but they may be able to give it to you. But uh, they went there, four or five people went with him. And they talked to the FBI's head counsel. And he said to them, if the FBI came in your building and went outside of the scope of that, of that search warrant, he said that whole thing is illegal. And he said, have you guys thought about suing them for what they've done? And so even the, even the head counsel for the FBI said, they sh- no way can you make that legal. You're supposed to function in the realm of that warrant. Instead, they, they, were, they were all over the place in people's purses and all kind of stuff. I mean, they went everywhere except for what the warrant asked for. And so from the beginning of this situation, it has been very, very bad and corrupt from the very beginning uh, actually, when this was brought up before the judge, she just totally disregarded it, that they came in and they didn't uh, function within the realm of the, of the search warrant, but rather they came and did what they wanted to do and corralled all the black people into the cafeteria, let the white people go home, and all of this was brought up front to the judge. She was so intent on destroying these men's lives and working with a corrupt prosecutor in which to destroy their lives, that makes you sick when you think about it. Well, I I can say this, that uh, abusing a search warrant in that matter has become very common. Uh, And unfortunately, uh, Fourth Amendment violations are very rarely these days grounds for any sort of... uh, any sort of relief, uh, either on appeal or, or some other sort of, po- of post-conviction relief, it's, it's almost as if the end justifies the means. Look, this was, in many ways, I believe, a very result-oriented prosecution, and uh, how they got to where they wanted to be uh, was really, to them, insignificant. And you, you unfortunately had a judge who who acted as more like part of the prosecution than an independent arbiter, which is unfortunately something that is not uncommon in federal court. And this is the type of tragic result that comes about when all these factors converge. And, it really and, so, and so actually just bringing that to the court means nothing. If they, can't, if they worked outside of the... Of, uh, outside of the warrant and what they were supposed to get when they got there, it doesn't even matter? Well, it, I mean, it obviously should matter, but 
it is the judge who is conducting the court, and if it doesn't matter to the judge, as it clearly did not in this case, then the net effect is it unfortunately does not matter. I see. Okay, I just wanted to bring that to the table because I thought that was terrible from the beginning. It started off bad. And and they knew that they had, had, had good software, and they knew they had been to Homeland Security several times. They knew they had been in NYPD, and they undermined these guys. I thought what was so terrible, they undermined the guys and went to all the people that they were about to close business, because they were about to close business with, uh, with Homeland Security for $100 million. Two weeks later, they're raided. And so they they went and told all these people, don't do business with them. Then you have the nerve to take them to court and say they were trying to trying to rip off staffing companies. You are the one who was undermining them. Even when they traveled overseas, everywhere they went, they undermined them there as well. That they could in no way sell that software and let it get out there. And so they've done everything they could to try to make these guys appear to be criminals when in actuality they were some of the nicest, most honest, decent men. And I'm not just saying that because it's my son or son-in-law, because everybody knows me. That's why they call me truth. If it wasn't, I would definitely say it. I have no doubt that that is true. And I think it's important to add that it is not uncommon in financial financial cases in federal court where the only reason the, the, the quote-unquote victims have been aggrieved is because it is the government that came in and threw up a roadblock for people That's to right. be repaid. And, and that is not uncommon. It's something that is seen in, in a lot of federal financial cases. And it's just part of the uh, convict-at-any-cost mentality that these people have. They are going to get their conviction. They don't care about the accused. They don't care about the victims. The victims are just a, a means to an end. There's something to be paraded before a jury and a judge so that they can get as heavy a sentence as possible handed down and put it on their resume and move on and move up the judicial corporate ladder. And that's what it's really about. And that's what we've got to fight against and get the and get things changed and bring this to the table because I think a lot of our legislators uh, in Congress don't even know how much how much corruption is actually going on in these courts all over the land and and some people actually say nothing about it but I think we've got to fight hard to put it out there that this type of behavior is going on in this country while we point our fingers at, at other people and I agree with you we don't have the best system in the world or we wouldn't have this many people in prison. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with and, you more. And, and thanks for the time. Thank you. Thank you for the call and the question and comments. Uh, and, and so, Mara, on, on that point, on some of the points that were being made, uh, how does a case get on the registry uh, as far as, you know, to be listed as uh, prosecutorial misconduct? Right now, we are, we have raised money uh, to begin to look at two states, the state of New York and the state of Arizona, and we are going to take state by state and federal cases as we can afford to, we figure that it costs about $50 per case to do the research to get them on. If anybody wants to, knows of cases and wants to propose them, you can go to our website and there is a uh, 
link to connect with with, with uh, CPI and and send some uh, recommendation in along with the case number and as much information as possible. That is not to say that someone will be able to get to it immediately because we've we've had to set priorities as we can uh, raise the money. But we are actively trying to raise this money because we think it's so important that the extent of the misconduct be known. It is one thing to hear a judge say that there is an epidemic of prosecutorial misconduct. It's another to see, for instance, the graph that we've got on, on our website that shows of the cases that we've looked at so far where you see the, the Brady violations where the government, whichever government it is, is withholding crucial information from the defense attorneys, information that the police have, have gathered. It could even be information about how something like that search warrant was executed. Information that should be turned over to defense attorneys is not. And those Brady violations are turning out to be the, the biggest bulk of, our, of, of the kinds of misconduct that we're seeing. But there are a lot of others. There's perjury, and there's overcharging, and there's contaminated evidence. A lot of other kinds of misconduct is showing up. So we think that, as with almost everything, uh, if you can get the actual facts out, the information, the data, then you have strengthened the argument a lot, uh, and, and that's what we're trying to do. And uh, also, does... Th- does the case have to be fully uh, dis- uh, disposed of, so to speak? Ha- ha- does it have to have gone through the entire process of uh, the judicial review and all that before someone there, there, can... Yes, yes. We, we, we figure that there are enough cases that have, have gone that far and have already been declared to have contained misconduct that just by exposing them, we will have uncovered the, the base of, of a very big mountain. Then we all know that there are so many more out there. It's just like with the, the DNA evidence. We may have people being exonerated based on DNA, but for everyone who is exonerated, we know that there are a lot of other people in prison behind that person who just didn't have a case that involved DNA to be checked or it hasn't been re-examined because nobody's bothered to do that so there are but but we see that that those kinds of exonerations are also just just a fraction of of the cases that they represent so so we are very intent on on both exposing the the numbers and kinds of of problems we have in this criminal justice system when I couldn't agree more with your caller and with Barry and everybody here who's saying we've we have got such serious problems in our in our justice system or what I prefer to call our legal system because there's there's so little real justice showing up in it these days but that that we should um, we we are also putting at the center, we, we are um, putting out white papers and trying to e- explain more about these different facets. For instance, the way that plea bargains 
are being uh, more than 90% of cases are now negotiated. They're like contracts between a prosecutor and the uh, and a defense attorney, and well, and not uh, with some kind of boilerplate plea, and not even being uh, going to trial, which is I think most Americans still have the idea that you get charged with a crime. There's a trial in there. In more than 90% of the convictions, that has not happened. All of the all of this sort of information that we want to make available uh, to the media, to the people who are in that system, and especially to the to the public, so that we can turn this ship around. Yeah, Mara, you know, my, I, I'd like to I, go ahead. I'd go like ahead, Barry. Like just just, just cut in for one there. second, Mara. I thought you raised a great point uh, on the plea bargaining and. Uh, I'm sure you're aware, but perhaps uh, the listeners are not, that in federal cases, the the percentage of cases adjudicated through a plea bargain is 97%. So only 3% of federal cases are going to trial. And in federal court, there's something uh, that's known as the trial penalty for people who do exercise their constitutional right to go to trial, like the IRP-6. Uh, they are typically dealt with very, very harshly if there is a guilty finding, uh, it's not uncommon to see a case where a defendant might be offered a, a, a five-year term under a plea agreement, be convicted at trial, and be sentenced to as much as 20 or 30 years, which begs the question, if the prosecutor originally believed a five-year sentence was appropriate, why would they, after trial, argue for a 30-year sentence? Right, right. It's, it's what... Um the Human Rights Watch called the offer you can't refuse it when when they come at you with such a with such a severe penalty should you exercise your constitutional right to a trial that that they're going to ask for something so harsh that it, so it that really point, puts the defendant in a box. When you talk about the sentencing. You know, that's one of the things that uh, immediately jumps out at people, even with the IRP-6, is that the sentencing was is excessive. I mean, you got 7 to 11 years, and, you know, even to the point that when, when the guys even showed up at the prison, you know, they were being asked by other inmates, you know, did you, what did you do? Did you kill somebody? I mean, you are getting a 7 to 11-year sentence, and drug dealers and, and you know, Attempted mur- uh, murderers are—they're not being—they're not being handed down those kind of sentences. We have another caller. Let's go to the phones. Janelle, are you yeah, there? So we have a caller. Okay, let's go back uh, to Mara and uh, and Barry. So Mara and, and and Barry, you know, uh, when we're talking about sentencing, uh, and and the thing is, you know, and Barry, you raise an interesting point in that why is someone else dealt with more harshly because they decided to stand up for their right, your constitutional right to face your accusers and, and, and prove your innocence, especially you know, when you are innocent, why are you going to take a deal? I, I believe that, that people are punished to that degree simply because they refuse to capitulate in the face of the prosecution. The prosecution determines that, look, 97% of the people I deal with take a plea. You're going to be in the 3% that's going to be defiant. You're going to be punished for that on top of whatever punishment might have been appropriate for the underlying offense. 
Wow. We on on the CPI website we have a link to the the Human uh, Rights Watch paper, their white paper that they did on on plea bargaining bargains, and it says uh, the striking disparity in sentence length is often referred to as the trial penalty. As one U.S. attorney acknowledged candidly, the key function of the trial penalty is to encourage pleas. And now the methods employed by prosecutors during plea bargain negotiations have come to be seen as so coercive as to be referred to as prosecutorial extortion. That's the the level of pressure that is being applied in some of these cases. That's exactly what it sounds like. And and then even, you know, in the uh, uh, IRP6 case, uh, I know that the guys, you know, when they were talk, they were being presented with a, a, a plea deal. I'm not going to say bargain, a plea deal yeah. um, uh, or a plea ag- agreement or arrangement, however you want to say it. And, and they were, you know, basically, you know, uh, the principle of the thing is you're asking me, you're telling me to say that, yes, I will admit to doing this, 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 and this. So you're telling me to come into a court of law. And lie. And lie mm-hmm. to get a reduced sentence. So you're asking me to do something that you have just accused me yep. of doing, yep. but you're going to give me a break on it because I'm lying because you tell me For it's you. okay to lie now. Yeah, but yeah. you swore in court that you would tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Yeah, that, that's sort you of know, a double that, that is such a great point because the net effect of this is that experienced criminals, career criminals who know how to play the game, they readily take these plea agreements. They have no compunction about coming into court, lying. They'll take their reduced time, whether they're guilty, innocent, or somewhere in between, and just live to fight another day. But someone who's truly innocent, who believes in the system, who, who wants to go through their, their constitutionally guaranteed right to trial, they are the ones that are punished excessively. And that's what's really out of whack with the system. Yep. Okay, so and more... And you all uh, remember the last time I was on and was talking about the case of the West Memphis guys who, after one of them being sentenced to death and, and the other two to life in prison without parole and serving 18 years in prison, then they were offered an Alfred plea whereby the state, after intense international pressure came down about there being no evidence against them, the state offers them this deal whereby they get to say that they were innocent but plead guilty to be let out of prison, and that's what they did. They made, that's what the Alfred plea allows them to do, plead guilty but say uh, yeah, plead guilty, but while maintaining their innocence. And with that, the state opened the door, and a man on, who had been on death row for 18 years walked out in the door, in the courts, in shackles, and out the front door in a suit. And and it happened to all three of them. That's how. That truly the, illustrates this idea of we really don't care about the truthfulness of what you're saying here in court. It's just the expediency of getting the result that we're looking for here. That's right. Yes, yeah. yeah. and, and the prosecutor has to be allowed to maintain their conviction. That That's equally as important. Which yeah. well, case yeah. the, the, the Alford plea did. It allowed the defendants to leave, but the prosecutor still had had his trophy, so to speak. 
Yeah. He got a big, big problem off of the state's back, or so it hopes. I still hope that it won't go away so easily for them. But, but uh, yeah, they, the state just hoped that this, this nasty issue would, would go away, and, and yet they would still, as you say, they would still have their guilty pleas. All right. Mara Leverett, uh, award-winning uh, journalist out of Arkansas, has written a couple books about the West Memphis Three and also tonight representing the Center for Prosecutor Integrity. want to direct our listeners to www.prosecutorintegrity.org. There's a lot, there are a lot of tools out there that uh, folks can use, and, uh, and, and it's very helpful. Like I said, you know, from a firsthand account, I've used it myself. Mara, we're going to post some information out there on uh, ajcradio.com, uh, and folks will be able to get more information as to how to get in contact with you and how to get in contact with the Center for Prosecutor Integrity. Thanks again, Mara, for joining us. Barry, I know I don't know if you were going to st- stick around for the next segment or not, but uh, after the break, we're going to come back. We're going to talk to Tammy Alexander. We're going to take just a very, very short break. Going to come back and talk to Tammy Alexander on behalf of Jamie Snow, and uh, that's going to be uh, part of our profile of the wrongful convicted. And oh, one other thing, real quick, Barry, before we go to this break, wanted to pass on to you uh, the truth. Uh, her name is Rose. And she uh, uh, sent us a message through chat, wanted to say that she really, really, truly appreciates uh, the powerful article that you wrote on behalf of the IRP-6 and how you told the truth. And, and you uh, really, you know, laid it out there. And that's why, you know, we want to ensure that people go out there and read that article and talk about, uh, you know, all the things that, uh, that were done wrong against the IRP-6. And uh, your article is very comprehensive, and so she just wanted to pass along her sincere appreciation for everything that you've done there. This is a Just Cause Coast to Coast where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. You are listening to Hey, we've had some break-ins in my neighborhood, and there's a real suspicious guy. He looks black. Did you see what he was wearing? A dark hoodie, like a gray hoodie. I think the hoodie is as much responsible for Trayvon Martin's death as George Zimmerman was. Do I look suspicious? Do I look suspicious? This guy looks like he's up to no good or he's on drugs or something. It's raining and he's just walking around looking about. Are you following him? Yeah. Okay, we don't need you to do that. You have to recognize that this whole stylizing yourself as a gangster, you're going to be a gangster wannabe. Well, people are going to perceive you as a menace. I am here to continue the research with my camp. I'm here to protect, protect my, my children, children and my grandchild. To fight, to fight justice. To write the next great American, great American movie. To give a voice to the voices. I'm here to I'm foster, here to foster generation, generation collapse. I am here. I am here. 
to live, to live. I am Trayvon Martin. I am Trayvon Martin. I am Trayvon Martin. I am Trayvon Martin. We are Trayvon Martin. It's time to wake up. This can happen. This can happen to you. Join a just cause in the fight against wrongful convictions, judicial injustice, misconduct, and corruption. Contact us at 855-529-4252 or at www.a-justcause.com. Just Cause, Coast to Coast, where we bring you educational awareness and information about judicial injustice. I'm Sam Thurman, along with Michelle Harris and Lynette Campbell. On behalf of Cliff Stewart, Ethel Lopez, and Lamont Banks, who are on assignment, uh, again, want to say thanks to Maura Leverett for joining us from the Center for Prosecutor Integrity. Joining us now is Tammy Alexander, and Tammy's going to talk to, talk to us a little bit about the Jamie Snow case, and uh, again, uh, a Just Cause has been uh, supportive of Jamie's case and helping to get the word out there, and then the, the folks associated with Jamie Snow has also been uh, helping out with getting the word out about the IRP6 case. Tammy, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. How are you? Thanks for your patience. Uh, we oh, are fine. Got, got a lot of good conversation going on tonight. Oh, I know. So, I love Mara, and it, it was great to hear Barry, too. I'm from Memphis, yeah. so I've seen her on panels before, so I, I was excited that she was on the show. Yeah. So Jamie's case is just, I mean, it, it's terrible. Uh, you have a, a, a uh, terrible crime that occurs, and he's nowhere in the area. Tell, tell our listeners a little bit about it and, then, uh, uh, and where we are now in the case, what folks can do to help. So talk to us a little bit okay. about Jamie. Okay, so Jamie was uh, convicted in 2001 for a, a, the murder of a gas station attendant during, a, during an apparent robbery in Bloomington, Illinois. That occurred in 1991 on, on Easter Sunday. He's currently serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole in Stateville Prison in Joliet. Um, in 2008, his case was accepted by the University of uh, Chicago's Exoneration Project. His attorney is Tara Thompson, um, and uh, the the he he was nowhere to be found. Um, we think that he was. I think that we finally tracked down when he he was almost immediately became a suspect. Um, he was. Um, if I can just kind of set the scene a little bit, he yeah, was. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, when when the first when. The, the the officers approached on a silent alarm at this gas station. Um, the attendant was 18 years old, and, of course, it was Easter Sunday. So th- there wasn't a lot of crime in Bloomington at that time, so this was, a, this was kind of a big deal. Um, so we have two officers basically there at the same time across the street. There's one person that they can see on the scene, and that person is putting air in his gas, or he's putting air in his um, tires. Um, 
he said that he he was walking up to the gas station, thought his car was going to die, turned around um, briefly, and then turned back around. And his story was that he came face to face with the suspect. Although that changes over the years, um, we don't think that they took this witness very seriously because they because they actually used a composite from an, a witness that had been in the store earlier that evening who described. Um, who described a gentleman with like a chin scar and an earring and um, that's the composite they released for like three years. But just to reiterate, there were two officers watching this person and even described him walking towards the store and turn around and he got back in his car and left and they never saw him run into to anyone. They were approaching on a silent alarm so they didn't even know, you know, what was going on yet. Um, they just wanted to make sure, you know, see if there was anything, you know, any anything inside. Um, there was another witness, two young boys, uh, Carlos Luna and Juan Luna, who were across the street, and they were um, watching, and they described someone that was completely different than the description that Martinez had and the description that the person that was in there earlier had. So this cold case uh, was a cold case, and it went on for like 10 years. And there was constant pressure on the police by the victim's mother to solve this, you know, to to solve this homicide and get justice for her son, which she should have. Um, however, you know, they 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 focused on Jamie, and I guess probably one of the biggest issues that we have in this is the the witness ID. Um, there's no, this is not based on, this case, this conviction was not based on DNA. It's based on uh, witness ID, uh, faulty witness ID, and um, jailhouse informants uh, who all, who all came up later. But I, you know, I did want to focus on this, on this, uh, what I call the 11th hour witness. That was Danny Martinez. That was the person that was airing up the tires. Um, He failed to ID Jamie at least five times over the years, um, including an in-person lineup. Two of the photo in which Jamie had attended, he asked two other people to move forward, and that was within two months of the crime. The night of the crime, he picked out two people from a photo array. We don't know how their suspects were clear, but I know that we're discussing prosecutorial misconduct tonight, and that... Uh, one of the huge issues is we just got the mug shots like a couple of years ago from a FOIA request from who he picked out that night. The prosecutor did not turn over those mug shots. They were not available before trial. Um, wow. It was unknown, you know, at, at that time. Um, and then, um, let's see, then those two IDs, and then in, uh, in July 13th, 2000, Jamie had a co-defendant as well that was arrested. Um, she was in Tennessee. Jamie was in Florida, and that was his his sister-in-law. There's absolutely no reason for her to be even involved in this, you wow. know, because they didn't even get along. Let me interject here. Um, I, I'm okay. looking at, you know, some information about the case. And there are, and you've just named off several things, but there are at least six things that I'm looking at here that that raise questions to me. 
Um, and I'm sure, and once I, you know, uh, bring them up, I'm sure our, our listening audience, they're, they're going to want to, you know, obviously I think, you know, folks are going to say, wow, really? So you got jailhouse informants claim that Jamie confessed, uh, confessed to them while awaiting trial. Uh, then those jailhouse informants recanted their testimonies in sworn affidavits. There is no physical evidence. You have at least one jury member who knew Jamie but did not inform the court uh, that, they, that they knew Jamie. You have a public defender who did not present an adequate uh, case. That public defender has since been uh, disbarred. Jamie's conviction remains. And then you have uh, the situation, like you were saying, as far as the eyewitness, uh, supposed you know, star witness, uh, was unable to identify Jamie in a, in a photo lineup. Um, with all of that on the table, uh, and, and like you say, we're talking about prosecutorial misconduct, so obviously with the, with the prosecutor not providing the photo lineup, and then all of these other things that, that happened, how could the, I mean, what was the, what was the, the, the tone in the, in the courtroom? What was the atmosphere in the courtroom that allowed all of this to go through. And, and I don't mean allowed in the sense that, you know, no one was trying to object to any of it because, I mean, with the IRP-6, we have a whole laundry list of things that, that went wrong in this case, not because of the IRP-6, but because of a corrupt system. So what was the, the climate like in the, in the courtroom in, in Jamie's case? Well, there, you know, it was interesting because I don't listen uh, for, I guess yours is the first federal court, you know, case that, um, you know, that I've, I've, I've looked at. I, but it, it seems to me like I was, when, when they were talking about it, I was thinking, well, they get their comeuppance in, 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 in state court. That's how they're raised because it's the same thing. It's the same thing in state court. We have a huge, uh, a huge problem with, um, the, with the culture uh, of the state court, I think. I mean, the year following this case, the um, the uh, judge, the process, the state's attorney was uh, was appointed a judgeship. This was a, a big case to solve. The uh, assistant state's attorney um, went on to Shuler County uh, to become the state's attorney. Um, the state's attorneys there that we've all gone through, I, I believe that both of them have become judges. If I'm, I know one of them has become a judge. Um, and now we have a, a, a state's attorney that has, that has run on the mantra of justice over politics. And, uh, and he won't look at the case. And, and to, to look at this from a broader view, I mean, there are tons of problems in Jamie's case and lots of stuff that we've uncovered that they did not turn to Brady violations left and right, serious ones um, that, you know, it's so difficult, you know, to, over, you know, to overturn something like this. But, you know, the, there are other cases within that same county where several, you know, we, this judge, judge the, the person that was a prosecutor who is now Judge Reinard has already had two convictions overturned based on... Uh, not disclosing evidence, you know. That I mean, that should be an, enough right there to to throw a question. There's about three other cases, and all of these were convicted around the same time um, that are trying to get DNA testing, and there is DNA 
in Jamie's case. They just won't test it. I mean, we're fighting to have fingerprints tested, to have uh, shoe, the shoe prints, there's bullets. Um, there's evidence there, and that's what we're fighting for as well. We have a motion before the circuit court to get the, the DNA tested, but thus far everything that we've had has been denied. And, um, I, you know, I haven't even announced it yet, but I'll say it right here, right now. Our, uh, our post-conviction petition, we had a successive post Conviction petition has been denied, and it was denied in January. We did not; they did not notify the attorneys, and they did not notify the defendant, James Snow, on two orders. Um, so it was denied in January, and then in uh, we filed a supplement in April, and then they made another order saying that there's nothing there to you know for the supplement. Um, so we're, you know, we've appealed that to the district uh, court, but, you know, that's, that's the same district court that, you know, that had denied us uh, relief on our on our first post-conviction petition. And, that, and I just have to note that, you know, Assistant uh, State's Attorney Tina Griffin um, was the, went to Shuler County. We successfully got that move, got this case moved out of Bloomington, out of McLean County, and where did they put it out of all the counties in Illinois? In Shuler County, in front of a judge in Shuler County, who has never given us any traction. Um, and it is so hard. It's such a hard fight, you know. And I, and I know this happens to so many people. But I, I, you know, you just you start to think that it's a conspiracy, because you know it's absurd that they didn't. Uh, we found out from a reporter who came to an event. Uh, in July um, that followed up on the paperwork on this case that that it had been denied. And, and we Tim, didn't even... Tammy, yeah. this is Michelle. What is troubling about this case and all these type of cases is that the prosecutors are fighting so hard to keep people that are wrongfully convicted, they don't seem to consider uh-huh. the fact that the guilty are still free. I mean, exactly. these crimes have been committed... Somebody has done this, and it's troubling to me that you're fighting so hard to try to show that you're not wrong, that you didn't make a mistake, or that you're just crooked, that you are letting guilty people committing very violent crimes walk the streets. And I find it's it's very troubling to me. I see a lot of prosecutors, they do not want to admit they are wrong. And what is troubling to me is you've got all these people out there that are guilty and have no conviction about the fact that somebody else is sitting in prison right now doing my time. And so uh-huh. I, this, is, um, this is scary to think and it's, that it's happening everywhere. Well, and to that point, uh, Michelle and, and Tammy, uh, that's part of, and, and one of the uh, bills that we as a just cause uh, are backing is the Justice for All Act. And that is an act that's sponsored by Senator Patrick Leahy, whereby it's the Justice for All Reauthorization Act. And all the things like you're talking about, Tammy, as far as needing to have uh, a DNA test done and all that kind of stuff, you know, the Justice for All Act is making uh, uh, reauthorizing the funds to be sure that all that can get taken care of and to be sure to, you know, draw down on that backlog of uh, DNA tests that need to, to occur. And like what Michelle was just saying, you know, it's a twofold benefit. You have the benefit of, uh, and maybe it's threefold from the standpoint that 
you have, uh, in the case of Jamie, uh, you have Jamie sitting in, in jail, innocent, and they won't do his uh, uh, testing. If they do it, and then it can prove his innocence, number one, you got an innocent man who is exonerated, he's released. Number two, you got uh, uh, the fact that it, then it opens up the, the situation that, like you said, Michelle, the person who really did it, Go get them. It's still out there. Exactly. So it, it, it at least raises the red flag to law enforcement that, hey, there is someone out there. This now is a unsolved case, and uh, we need to go out there and get it. The third thing is it does, it, it, it'll bring closure to a certain extent, yeah. at least you know, to, uh, to Jamie's family. That's right. That Jamie is now back home, but then the families who were affected by the fact that you know, the, the guilty person is still out there, yeah. Then you know they need to know that they need to know that the real perpetrator is still out there and want and then law enforcement can go after the real person and bring closure on their part. And it takes such a toll on the families of the innocent man. They know he didn't do it. He knows he didn't do it. Yet the families are being punished right along with him. And and you would think if my loved one had been murdered, I want you to get the person that did it. The right person. Exactly. I want to know that justice has been done. You would think everybody should be looking for justice. And what's scary is the fact that the prosecutors seem to have forgotten that point. That's what they're there for. They're supposed to be finding the truth. When it's changed and they started going after numbers and that, you know, like, like Mr. Sussman was saying, yeah, this is a cost. stepping stone. Yeah, this is a, I don't care about whether who's guilty or not. Yep. And to me, I would be offended that if my loved one was murdered, that you care so little about my loved one that you, you can, don't care who – it doesn't matter. This is just, a, you know, it's, it's a another win in my win column, That's and right. I really don't care who murdered your son. Yeah, I'd have a problem with that. That's and right. to me, even the victim should be speaking out saying, listen, we want the truth. We want to know what has happened. I would be offended if you did that to me. I have a loved one and you care so little about my loved one who is a citizen of this country who pays your bill, your uh, salary, pays your salary. Mm-hmm. And yet none of that is relevant. So, Tammy, uh, on that point, um, in light of all of this evidence in support of Jamie's innocence uh has any any members of the affected family you know spoken up and 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 said anything or or are they just kind of sitting back in the fact that well there is someone sitting in jail who uh who the court system says committed this crime so we're good to go i I, you know i think i think it's more like that they i know that they have been convinced um that jamie was the one that did it I know that they had them convinced. And uh, there's the, we even have a police report from 1999 where Danny Martinez was asking the cops, hey, why did you give Mrs. Little my phone number? <laughs> I gave a material witness of the, you know, the victim's mother's phone number. Um, and, you know, there's all kinds of stuff like that in this case. But I, I think that they, you know, I, I don't know. I can only I can only suspect that they just want to... Uh, they don't want to relive it. You know, they don't, they don't want to relive it. I have no idea. I feel the same way. I know in my heart that I would want to know what happened. But, at, you know, to your other point, I mean, those that I agree with all of those three points that you made, but they don't want the lawsuit. They want to save face. And um, they don't want to be responsible 
for crimes that happened because they did a crappy job on the case. So you're thinking about, there's a great study out um, in Illinois that the cost of the high cost of wrongful convictions, which breaks yep. it down into the money and that, that's a wonderful study because it shows all the crimes that they can find when they did find the real perpetrator that that you know that these that these people committed that the real person committed while that person was sitting in prison for twelve or fifteen years that that's lives that they're going to have to take responsibility for and they'll and fight the, it tooth and nail and they have the advantage you know the let's face sure it about, uh, the prosecutors um, and their misconduct the more the public's faith is going to go down in the judicial system. Yeah, I don't think they have yeah. any right now, period. But the problem is, is we got to do something about it to actually make a difference. And, you know, that study you're yeah. talking about, uh, Tammy, is put out by uh, the BetterGov.org. And so folks can go to right. BetterGov.org and take a look at that. And it, and it talks about, you know, paying for injustice. And uh, David Banks, one of the IRP6, he actually did a study even uh, uh, and, and did some analysis of, you know, the cost of incarceration. And, and so you, you talk about paying for injustice, and then when you talk about uh, and rolled up into that is the cost of uh, incarcerating someone who shouldn't even be there. And, and, and it's like, you know, if there is any question, you, you're going to come out better by saying, okay, let's put this person on an ankle uh, monitor and send them home. But the fact that you're right. spending millions of dollars, taxpayer dollars, and, and like in the, in the one that you're talking about by BetterGov, dot uh, org. That's just a study of of, uh, of Illinois, if I if I recall correctly. It is. You're right. Can you imagine yeah. if a national study was done? Oh my gosh, it'd be billions of dollars. Yeah, and, and that oh just God. in the state of Illinois, and and based on the fact that when this particular study was done in 2011, you're talking over 200 million dollars lost, 200 million dollars right. wasted in paying for. Uh, paying for injustice, and that's the way it's worded, paying for injustice, 85 wrongful convictions, 81 cases involving government misconduct or error, a total of 900, uh, collectively, of all the people who were wrongfully convicted, over uh, 900, 926 years spent in prison at a cost of over $200 million. That is insane. It is. Yeah, and so what... How how is how is Jamie's uh, family? Uh, are they actively engaged in this whole fight? And and how you know how are they doing? They're they're kind of private. That's a it's a rough. Uh, they've had this over their head in that what is a s- small town, basically you know all all their all their lives the kids. Um, but yes, they absolutely believe in his innocence and always have and do support. Uh, all of, all of the efforts they are they are very actively involved, um, but you know it's it's just hard. They you know I mean he has he has five kids, you know, <laughs> and they're they basically grew up you know without him, and uh, you know it's it's rough and a, and a single mother that had to raise them uh, alone, and you know it's. it's I can't you know, speak for them, but I know, I know, I know that they've always believed in his innocence, and they're a wonderful, wonderful family. Yeah, and, and you know, Tammy, I, I, as I look at causes of uh, wrongful convictions, and even in that study, again, uh, there in, in Illinois, 
uh, it looks like Jamie got bitten by every category I that listed in the study. I mean, you got alleged uh, police misconduct or error, erroneous eyewitness identification, alleged prosecutorial misconduct or error, false confession, where, where Jamie didn't confess, but uh, you got uh, uh, folks who, who, who said that he confessed, uh, incentivized yeah. witness testimony, questionable forensic evidence or testimony. In this case, they are not uh, uh, testing the evidence. And then alleged ineffective uh, assistance of counsel. And so I'm going to take that word alleged off of there uh, because of the fact that, you know, if your attorney got disbarred, uh, then I, I think the you know, He went to some- prison. He went to prison. Jamie's, Jamie's attorney went to prison for bilking an elderly woman for over $250,000 or life wow. saving because he was a POA in a, in a, in a, in a, in a and she died in a nursing home, penniless. The first wow. officer on the scene, Jeff Pilo, he went to prison for like 400 years for stalking and rape. What? Uh, you know, he was... <laughs> Jamie's not the only one that went to prison in this case. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, and the thing, you know, I, I got to draw a parallel here to, to when you talk about the ineffective counsel, uh, the IRP-6, you know, a lot of times people question, well, why did they go pro se? You know, why did they defend themselves? Because, and, and I gotta, I'm going to say, like we say, we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But in this case, the court-appointed attorneys did not, do, uh, did not conduct themselves in a way, in a manner that was effective. They were not putting together a strategy on behalf of the IRP-6. They didn't want to have anything to do with even discussing a strategy. And then you end up getting these continuances uh, that were back to back, and 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 then if they did not want to go into, we were talking earlier mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. how when the IRP six put together the proffer and how they wanted to go to U.S. Attorney John Walsh, the attorneys didn't want to go in there with them. I mean, they show up in a meeting one day, the attorneys are sitting on one side of the table, yeah, and the IRP six end up sitting on the other side. Yeah, your and, attorneys are supposed to be representing you, yeah, not against you. Well, it was it, it was a That's divisive. Disgusting. Atmosphere, absolutely, absolutely. All, all they wanted them to do was take a plea. That's yeah. basically what the lawyers showed up for. All we want you to do is take a plea, and they're rightfully so saying we're not guilty. We're not pleading nothing. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and so you know, the IRP six ended up they fired their attorneys and went pro se because it, it, it's like, what are you going to do? Just uh, allow the attorney to for you to put me on a platter and hand me over, over to the them? prosecution. Oh, yeah. You're right. So, uh, Tammy, what's next uh, as far as, you know, I, I know that you guys have the Innocence Project there uh, at, the, at the university that's, that's working on it. Uh, but, gosh, uh-huh. it seems like it takes so long for, for these. I guess this isn't the Innocence Project. It's the University of Chicago's Exoneration Project. Correct. Correct. Okay. It's the Exoneration so, Project. So what, what is the state of affairs as far as, you know, uh, what, what are you hearing from them as far as where they are with Jamie's case? Well, we're, we're continuing to, to, to dig up new evidence that we've never been granted discovery. And we've gotten so much uh, new evidence just from digging for it. Um, you know, and also we've got like 17 plus affidavits that you know people have given us that they've either changed or they've recanted their testimony. Um, so we've got this 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 
crazy PC, uh, our successive PC, we're trying to deal with that right now, waiting on a ruling, because that was a big surprise. Um, we've got the DNA motion before the circuit court, and we've got a federal habe in abeyance um, while we get these circuit court matters uh, settled. And that's that's where we are. We have um, the invest, investigating innocence. Um, Bill Clutter's group is is helping with the investigation, um, and we're just trying to get as many people involved as we can to scream about it. We go up there and scream about it right there in town about twice a year. Um, I don't know. All you can do is fight hard. Yeah, just keep fighting it. <laughs> Well, it takes a long know, time, you know. Yeah, it does. It does. And and you know, we uh, like I said, you know, Just Cause and the Just Cause team from a social media perspective is uh is is going to continue to help push the story out there. How can folks get in contact with you Tammy if if uh they have some uh way that they want to assist you in any way? How can they how can they contact you? Um they can just email at info@freejamiesnow.com. Um, and that website, his website is freejamiesnow.com. We're all over Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and all of the all of the social media sites. Um, but I, I just want to get in our tip line. If, if anybody has any any information, especially about reward money, there was like seventy five hundred dollars worth of reward money that was missing. Um, they will not tell us what happened to that reward money. Um, it's eight eight eight. Eight one five nine two nine nine. If you know anything about this case, if if anybody has talked to you and given you information about this case, if you lied on the stand, if you had any part in it, you can come to us and you can talk to us, and it will be it's free and confidential. And then just to give a quick rundown of uh, some other organizations that support Jamie's innocence, uh, you already talked about the Exoneration Project. Uh, investigating Innocence Committee, uh, the Committee to Free Jamie Snow, Injustice Anywhere, yeah. Justice for Illinois uh, Wrongfully Convicted, and then the Freedom Fighters. So we're going to ask our listeners if you can uh, support Jamie Snow, uh, support Tammy and her organization as far as helping to get the word out there, and if you have uh, any any other means of support that you can provide to, to them if you're uh, located there uh, near, uh, near uh, Tammy and in the state of Illinois that you could provide that type of support. And, Tammy, we're going to post information out on our website uh, on AJCRadio.com as to how to get in contact with you. And uh, and so uh, please pass along our thoughts and prayers to Jamie and his family, and we appreciate everything that you guys are doing. Okay, thank you so much. I really appreciate you giving us a voice. All right. Have a good night, Tammy. Okay, you too. Bye. Thank you. Okay, so, uh, you know, we've had different flavors tonight of uh, uh, conversation regarding the, uh, you know, prosecutorial misconduct. And, you know, in, in every situation that we've talked about tonight, you know, from the early discussion where we were talking about Attorney General Eric Holder and, and uh, what's going on in Ferguson and how he spoke up about the uh, racial disparities that occur in this, in this country. And, and, you know, we can draw parallels to the IRP-6 and how they were conducting business like anybody else, and why are they in prison. So we want to ask uh, folks to go out to freetheirp6.org 
freethe56.org. Uh, also, go out and sign the petition at change.org. Uh, do a search on IRP6. We talked a little bit earlier about the uh, transcript and uh, the over 200 pages. And, and Judge Arguello and uh, uh, court reporter Darlene Martinez talked about that yeah. and talked about the fact that uh, there, there was a sidebar conference where that transcript is not available. The they judge says, well, I don't remember what I said. Well, how can you hold that against the IRP-6? So that's, that's true. the thing as far as the petition. We're asking folks to go out there and sign it. The IRP-6 are Gary Walker, David Banks, Dave Zappolo, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, and Demetrius Harper. Keep them in your prayers. Yes, and Sam, if everyone would out tonight, please call Attorney General Eric Holder's office at 202-514-2003 and 202-514-2005. Just ask them to investigate the IRP-6. Thank you. And, Lynette, as far as the jury, I mean, just like Tammy was talking about, you know, putting a, a plea out to listeners that if you know anything, if you're on the witness stand and you lie, and, uh, you know, um, we need your help. Well, we're asking that same thing of the jury. And to the jurors, if you need, you think you needed extra evidence, you didn't get it, if you believe you didn't have enough, but uh, we, we can't hold you... Um, Accountable. Accountable. We understand that you made your decision based on what you had. Uh, if you'd like, if you have any other evidence, if, you, if anything that was that occurred in the jury room after the defendant left, please give us a call. Yeah. At, I, well, and, and the thing is, I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but you know, when when Judge Arguello went into the into the jury room, she said something. Yes. And so, you know, that's the kind of thing that we are asking folks. To, uh, to call us about. Yes, please give us a call at 858-525-4252. That's 855-529-4252. And please, you can email us anonymously at contact at a-justcause.com. And, you know, when the truth called a little bit ago and, and she was talking about, you know, even some of the things that we had talked about earlier as far as, mm-hmm. the you know, the way the FBI conducted themselves when they were yeah. coming in and, and, you know, with uh, the brother-in-law going to talk to uh, the FBI's uh, uh, lead attorney. Mm-hmm. And, and I was in that meeting as well. And uh, so that the name of that attorney uh, was Bob Goffey. Mm-hmm. And so Mr. Goffey did, in fact, sit there and say, uh, and he, he looked, you know, he had the deer in the headlights look like, I can't believe, you know, what I'm hearing. And if the FBI did do what you guys are saying they did, they violated that warrant. You know, my question is, why are people, and it goes back to what Barry was saying, you know, uh, people are using different things for stepping stones for career progression and all this kind of stuff. Why can't someone just stand up and say, you know, uh, we're going to investigate the FBI because they went outside the realm of that uh, search warrant. And like you said, Michelle, you know, the things that happened uh, on that day, uh, it, 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 it's, it's so be- much. It's beyond reproach. Exactly. I, I mean, uh, no, it, it was a reproach. Let me put it that way. <laughs> yes. yes. And so. Uh, and it but, was so much. If, it's not like we're talking one thing. There are so many things wrong with this case that have been done wrong to these guys. Yep. That's why we're asking. We need somebody to investigate this. Because once they start pulling it up, they're going to find all kinds of stuff corrupt that happened in here. Yeah. So go out to freethe6.org, freethe6.org to get more information. For information about a just cause, go to a-justcause.com. Uh, we would appreciate any donations that you might be able to make. Uh, click on the donate button. Uh, we have a lot of helpful resources out there as well. For uh, programming, 
1030 AM, 02 Progressive Radio Network, PRN.FM, each Sunday morning from 1030 AM to 1230 PM for a just cause coast to coast. Listen to our archives at AJCRadio.com. Also, you can catch live 24, uh, or I should say 24 by 7 programming at Live365.com. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. I want to say uh, we appreciate all of our guests this evening. Barry Sussman, uh, he's a federal criminal analyst, and uh, he did an outstanding on the IRP6 story. Also, Mara Leverett with the Center for Prosecutor Integrity. And then we just finished wrapping up with Tammy Alexander representing Jamie Snow. I want to say uh, thanks to the truth and uh, always helping to, to, you know, keep us motivated, keep us pushing. And then, you know, just always got some good comments and questions uh, when she calls in. I want to say thanks to uh, the production team, K&D Production, Captain Kyle and Dustin and Il Skiller's girl. Uh, also to our, product, uh, our research team, uh, thanks for all the work that you do and pulling all the information together. To Olivia, Gloria, Ms. Barbara, uh, I want to say thank you. Michelle, Lynette, thanks for joining us. And on behalf of Cliff Stewart, Ethel Lopez, and Lamont Banks, this is a Just Cause Coast to Coast where we bring you education, fairness, and information about judicial injustice. Good night, America. Good night, y'all. Federal government targeted, uh, prosecuted, convicted, six executives in, held back evidence, hundreds of pages of Mr. Manuscript, court circuit, temp district denying the writ of mandibus, read RP6, critical yeah. rights violations, scandalous, uh, their motivation is finished, they've been as yeah. major companies, the government, New York PD, DHS, potential customers, come on, faith attempt to obtain funding from banks and angel investors with no success, uh, calm meltdown, finance, skeptics, uh, so they hire staffing companies to fill the gap with yeah. every attempt. To fulfill the contract for the deal for money come back Everybody paid the bills to wages Take care of all of that No Friday They got viable software But you compare them to those with nothing to offer Prosecuted by the attorney's office Before the FBI gotta start Investigating charges Skipping steps in the process Even boring the testimony of Andrew Alvarez A witness who could tell why any staffing company That could do with them Bradstreet Credit check would stick out their neck If there was no prospect they could collect when they're reeling the net, it all relates to Harvey Silver Glade State. Nothing Come on. about the vagueness of federal law. Do this from chaos. Uh. A underscore just cause. Read at rp6.org. It's just us, but we don't gotta just talk. We can just march through the courts. But the cause with one voice is just free them all. Come on.